Good morning, everyone. I'm Meredith Dancos. I'm the teaching pastor here. And I just want to re-echo what Christy said. Today is a PG-13 sermon. We're not joking about that. So if you want to check your kids into Kids Rock, it's an awesome program. And I would highly encourage it because it is adult content that we're talking about today. So that's out of the way. So we're kicking off our new series, What the Health? Okay, what the health? And we live in a pretty health-obsessed culture nowadays, right? There's so many messages about how to be healthy. Even just, if you think about the fitness world, and they're all competing. So like, you know, you're supposed to do low-intensity workout. You're supposed to do high-intensity workout. You should work out for only 15 or 20 minutes, or you should work out for lots of hours. There's a whole thing on like slow weightlifting. You're supposed to lift your weights very slowly, not too fast. Or there is a, a movement, maybe you've seen this, it's called goat yoga. Has anyone heard of goat yoga? You're supposed to do yoga with goats, and it's supposed to calm you down and be even more zen. And you just think, even when it comes to working out, what do you do? What's actually the right thing to do? And then you add diet on top of that and sleep and all these things. And here's the thing. Any one of us who's got, kind of gone down one of these rabbit holes of, like, this is what I'm supposed to do to be healthy, or this is what I'm supposed to do to be healthy, it starts to feel very burdensome, right? You start to feel like, oh, I have to do all this work to fix myself, and it's this constant project. And in the end, even if you start to see results, you're still left with what feels like this emptiness inside. And because this is the thing, the culture, it's talking about the symptoms of unhealth. And it's trying to solve the symptoms of unhealth, but it's not actually dealing with the root of unhealth in our life. And the root of unhealth is what, in the Christian tradition, we call sin. And so some of you are like, oh, I know what sin is. And others of you are like, what does that even mean? Like, what does that word mean? And it's shorthand for everything that's broken in the world. That's what we would say. Sin is shorthand for everything that's broken. Broken relationships, uh, broken dreams, broken bodies. It's just because we are disconnected from our creator. Our relationship with God has been broken. And so we see this both at a cosmic level. So sin shows up at a cosmic level and broken systems, systems of injustice and poverty and racism and sexism and all those things, but it also shows up at a personal level. What we do individually and collectively becomes sin. And so it's this brokenness. And Francis Spieford has a great summary of it. He says it's the human propensity to make a mess of things. And this is a great quote. He says, it's our active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here including moods, promises, relationships we care about, and our own well-being and others, as well as material objects whose high gloss positively seems to invite a big, fat scratch, right? It's this, that we mess things up. We break things. And so sin, sin is brokenness. And now there's not like one exhaustive list of sins because as humans, we are incredibly creative, right? We can, we can make all sorts of things out of sins, but the church in the tradition of the, of the Christian tradition, the church has kind of categorized seven vices, known as the seven deadly sins. And they're kind of the, the root of all the bad behavior that we have. And so the seven deadly sins are lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. And the interesting thing is you don't see like murder or theft or adultery in there, you know, the, the, what you think are like the heavy hitters. But really, the tradition holds Actually, all of those things stem from one of these sins, stems from one of these vices, that they're actually at the core of it. And really, all of these vices are just a distortion of a God-given virtue, 
of something that is good and our desire gets kind of out of whack and we start going at it the wrong way, right? And so we're going to talk about each of these over the week. But here's a, Rebecca DeYoung has a really good quote about even how we think about vice. And she says it this way, vice happens when our pursuit of these good things, so the good things that God has for us, gets twisted. That is when we try to make them fill gaps and needs in our hearts that only God can fill. And when we define happiness in terms of them, rather than appreciating them as finite blessings from God. And so vice happens, these seven deadly vices happen when a good virtue gets out of whack and gets turned on its head and we start going at, a, at it in a distorted way. And so we're going to, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at each one of these seven deadly vices, seven deadly sins. And today we're just going to start off with a bang and we're going to talk about lust. So let's just get lust over with today, okay? So, and everyone, I'm just warning you, you're all going to feel really uncomfortable by the end of this sermon. So it was uncomfortable to write it. It's uncomfortable to preach it. It's going to be uncomfortable to hear it. Let's just buckle up and we'll get through it, okay? So lust, lust, the, the distortion, the distorted virtue of lust is actually love, right? Love is the God-given virtue, and lust is when it gets out of whack. And our culture has always had a hard time distinguishing between lust and love. It gets them confused. So because I, I've pulled a couple of lyrics from some of our popular love songs, and I just want you to think about if someone were to put this on a greeting card or actually say this to you, how you would feel. So here's a few of them. What if someone came up to you and said, I'm in love with the shape of you? You might be like, what? Like that? That is a weird thing to say. Or the way you flip your hair gets me overwhelmed, right? You're like, thanks? I, I don't know how I feel about that. Or um, break up with your girlfriend because I'm bored. Mm-hmm. Or this one I love. You're the one I want to want me, right? It's not you're the one that I want. I want you to want me. And you feel like, that feels kind of icky. Like, don't, don't say that to me. Or I promise that you'll never find another like me, you know, because I'm awesome. Or uh, I'll follow you through the dark. Can't get enough. You think, oh, are you stalking me? And lest we think that this is a modern song problem, I pulled a couple lyrics from some of our older songs too. So Elvis saying, love me tender, love me true, all my dreams fulfill. So someone like pr proposes to you and says, I want you to love me and fulfill all of my dreams. Will you please marry me? And you think, that doesn't feel very nice. Or how about this one? Oh, my love, my darling, I've hungered for your touch a long, lonely time. You think, that is a weird thing to say. Or last one, um, you're just too good to be true. I can't take my eyes off of you. You'd be like heaven to touch. I want to hold you so much. And all of these feel a little creepy, right? You're like when you actually like think, like when you sing it, you think, oh, that's so nice. But when you hear it, you go, that? I don't want someone to say that to me. Because all of these are about you know, self-gratification or possession, and they're objectifying. And that is what happens with lust. So love is about mutual affection, mutual respect. It's, you don't love someone for what they do for you. You love someone for who they are, right? You appreciate who they are. And so love is self-giving. While lust takes that and twists it and distorts it, and it becomes about self-gratification, and it becomes about self-indulgence and possession, and it, and it reduces people to objects for our own pleasure. That's the difference between lust and love. It turns other people into objects to be consumed. And James Bryan Smith has a good definition of lust. He says, lust is a false and short-lived pleasure that ultimately harms life. 
Lust feels good in the short term and does damage in the long term. Right? It, it, it definitely is like we were, we're drawn into it because there is a self-pleasure in lust, but it actually ends up diminishing life. Rebecca DeYoung says it like this. Lust pretends sex and sexual pleasure are a party for one. Lust makes sexual pleasure all about me. It is, it is a self-gratification project. And so she says it's a, an excessive desire for our own self-pleasure. That is what lust. And now a bunch of you might be sitting here going, yeah, I don't, I don't really struggle with lust. That's not, that's not my thing because I, I don't do any of that stuff. Well, here's the problem. Lust is more than what you do, right? Jesus redefines it for us. And he says lust, lust starts in the heart. Lust is a heart issue. And I'm going to make a case today that every single one of us struggles with this issue of lust. We're all guilty of it. And so let's look at Jesus' words. He's, in his most famous sermon, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches and tackles all sorts of uncomfortable topics. You know, he talks about money. He talks about politics. He talks about all the things you're not supposed to talk about. And he talks about lust. And he's reframing what it means to be a human, what it means to, to live, to be in relationship with God. And he's trying to expose the sin problem that is at the root of all of our misbehavior. And so he says this. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Okay. So let's unpack what Jesus is saying here because this sounds really rough, right? Like, I'm supposed to be, like, plucking out my eye and cutting off my hand? Like, what is Jesus talking about? Because he's, like, really raised the bar here. So first he says, you have heard the commandment that says. So Jesus is addressing a group of Israelites who live by what's known as the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law was given to Moses when, Jesus when, when God first, like, rescued Israel from Egypt and brought, brought them to the promised land and said, this is how you're going to live. You're going to be a nation that's set apart, and this is, these are the rules for you. Okay, that's the Mosaic Law. And, and adultery is a big deal. It's in the Ten Commandments, and it also says this. Within the law, it says this. If a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. And then in Deuteronomy, it says, if a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. In this way, you will purge Israel of such evil. Okay, so adultery is a big deal, right? It, it, the penalty for adultery is death. That's what Jesus is talking about. So he's saying, you know this commandment, right? That if you go and sleep with someone who you're not married with, who's married to someone else, you, the penalty is death. He says, that's what you've heard, but I say... And now, this is a big deal that Jesus says, but I say, you've heard this, you know the commandment, but I'm saying something more, because that would be like me standing up here going, well, you know the Bible says this, but I say you should actually do this, right? This is me, like, I'm more important than what the Bible says. That's what Jesus is doing in this moment. But I say, and why is he doing that? Because Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He is claiming ultimate authority over the law and how we interpret the law. So he's saying it, it doesn't matter what you've heard or even what the letter of the law says. What I say is more authoritative. And what I say is it's not just enough to, to abstain from a certain behavior. If it is even in your heart, you're just 
as guilty. You're just as guilty. And we have to go, well, Jesus just really raised the bar here. Because, like, if I go to a movie and I think someone is attractive in the movie, should I, like, gouge my eye out on the, uh, on the way out? Like, is that, like, if I find someone attractive at all, have I now just sinned and I'm worthy of, like, this punishment? Like, what is Jesus talking about? Because it can seem like a really extreme or impossible standard, right? So what, the way to really understand this is we have to take a deeper dive into what he means to look at someone with lust. And the word he uses here, it's a Greek word, um, it's called epithumia, and it means to covet. It's a studied look with sexual intent. It's a look with sexual arousal in mind. James Bryan Smith defines it this way. He says, epithumia is not referring to the first look, but the second. The first look may be simple attraction, but the second look is leering. Lust does not value the person, but mere body parts. Epithumia goes beyond mere sexual attraction. It intentionally cultivates sexual desire for the sake of the feeling itself. It is the opposite of love. Love looks into the eyes. Epithumia steals glances below them. Love values the other as a person. Epithumia degrades the other. So Jesus is not talking about attraction or even arousal. That is not what he's talking about here because we have to remember, first and foremost, we believe we, have, we were created by God, intentionally designed, and human sexuality is part of that. It's not a flaw in the design. It is part of the design. So attraction, desire, arousal, pleasure, all of that is, is meant, it, it's intended to be part of the human experience. However, God created human sexuality, and God created human sexuality with frameworks in mind. God put boundaries in mind. And so that is within a covenant relationship. That's the intention, is that human sexuality in its most intimate forms are expressed within a covenant relationship. So uh, attraction, and attraction is necessary to even start a relationship, right? To move towards intimacy. That's the intention, that attraction and arousal are meant to bring us towards love and intimacy and connection and, and commitment. That's the intention. So it's not attraction that Jesus is coming after. What epithemia is, it is looking, it is intentionally looking in order to seek out arousal, right? It is looking with the potential of lust. It, it's an intentional action. So it's not just merely being, finding someone attractive. It's not going to a movie and saying, oh, that, that actor is really attractive. That is not what, what Jesus is talking about. But he's saying it's when we go for our own self-pleasure, when we're, when we're seeking it out. And it ultimately objectifies the other person. So attraction, God-given, desire, impulse, lust is the distorted version of that. It starts as a craving in the heart, right? So lust doesn't start in the bedroom. Lust starts as a craving in the heart. That's, that's where it starts. And, and then he goes on to say how serious of an issue this is, right? How serious it is because he says... If, you, if you're even guilty of this, right, if you lust in your heart, then you should pluck out your eye and cut off your hand. And he doesn't just say your eye and your hand. He actually says your right eye and your right hand. And, and in this tradition, that was your dominant, powerful side, right? So this would be a very severe loss. And he says it is better to be maimed than he uses this word to be, than have your whole body thrown into hell. And the word he's actually using there is called Gehenna. And Gehenna was actually a place. See, we think of hell, and we, we have all these, like, you know, 
big epic pictures um, that, that have been painted for us, but Gehenna, he's pointing to a place, and Gehenna was this trash pit outside of the city that was constantly on fire. It was also where all the sewage went to. It was where they put dead bodies. It was disgusting, and you could see the smoke and the fire coming from it. It is like this repulsive, awful place, and he's saying, essentially, he's, try- he's, he's doing something very extreme here, and he's doing something very extreme because he's trying to show this does great damage to your life. This does great damage to your life. And there's a few things to point out here, okay? The first is when he says to pluck out your eye and cut off your hand, he's, he's relying on common wisdom because back then they believed that the sin resided in the body part, right? This is why a lot of cultures, if someone was caught stealing, they would cut off the hand because they thought cut off the sin and it will go away. So he's, he's pulling on common wisdom of, oh, the sin resides in the eye, the sin resides in the hand. And then notice what else he says. He says, you should pluck out your eye, and you should cut off your hand, which is very different from the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law said, if you catch someone, then, then they should be killed. This is something he's saying, you should do it to yourself in order to save yourself. But the most important thing to know is that Jesus is using a rhetorical device here. He's using a rhetorical device. It's called reductio ad absurdum. Reductio ad absurdum, and it means to reduce an argument to its logical absurdity. And he does this over and over and over again, right? If you read the Sermon on the Mount, he uses crazy images and exaggerated language to try to get at the heart of the problem. So he's not literally saying people should go maim themselves. He's using absurd, ridiculous logic to show how very serious the problem of lust is what it actually does to our soul and to our heart, and that it's something that we actually need to take care of. And he uses the eye and the hand on purpose because the eye stands for the impulse to lust, and the hand stands for the act of lust, to actually act on that. And I'm going to break that down for us. I want to talk about the ways that we all can fall victim to this trap of lust. And so let's talk about the impulse of lust first, you know, plucking out our eye. What does this mean? Because the impulse, it's the desires, it's the um, images, it's the expectations that fill your mind and ultimately feed your heart, right? It's what fills your mind and feeds your heart. And I'm going to say this is ultimately what we call pornography. And now some of you are like, well, I don't have a pornography problem. Well, pornography is more than illicit pictures and, and sensual videos, right? That is definitely part of it. But pornography is material that is in- intended to cause lust. And I'm going to talk about three different types of pornography. And the first is visual pornography. And this is the one that's most obvious, right? Visual pornography is illicit pictures and videos and sexual content. And it is a major problem in America. It is a major, major problem. And that is mainly because the lie at this stage, at the impulse stage of lust, is nobody really gets hurt. Nobody really gets hurt. It's just a fantasy world, and, you know, it's just thoughts and pictures, and and it doesn't hurt anyone. But that is absolutely not true. And if you, even if you watch television or movies nowadays, our culture has shifted to talk about pornography as if it, visual pornography as if it's something natural, and, and it's a common activity, and it's kind of a rite of passage, and it's totally healthy and normal, but it is not. And the lie that visual pornography is natural and neutral has been debunked. So, there, so the first way that pornography hurts people is it hurts the user. 
It hurts the person using pornography. There have been 35, over 35 neuroscience-based studies done around visual pornography to show that pornography addiction is real, that your brain gets addicted. And what happens is it's called a diminishing cycle of, of um, pleasure. And what first you found pleasurable, suddenly it, you need more, and you need more, and you need more. And people who are addicted to pornography find themselves in more and more extreme things and looking at more extreme things and seeking that out. And it does great damage. It, it lowers uh, sexual and relational satisfaction. It distorts the user's view of sex, love, and relationships. And Frederick Buechner says it like this. It says, at its root, the hunger to know someone sexually is a hunger to know and be known by that person humanly. Food without nourishment doesn't fill the bill for long, and neither does sex without humanness. And that's the thing about visual pornography, is it removes the humanness from sexual interactions. And, and it distorts it distorts that, and it leaves the user unsatisfied and empty and shamed and not able to connect with, with the person they want to. And then visual pornography hurts the person that you are in relationship with. Right? It, those who regularly, regularly use visual pornography are more critical of their partners. It is shown to be 300 times more likely that you will, that you will um, participate in marital infidelity if you are a regular pornography user. And it's a, ultimately, it's a violation of the vow of, the, of, of what intimacy is supposed to be. So it hurts the person you're in relationship with. And thirdly, it hurts the person on the other end. It hurts the person on the other end because the pornography industry has been linked to sexual exploitation and human trafficking. Over 88% of scenes depict violence of some kind, and uh, it robs the other person of their humanity. And sometimes we just need this reminder right here. Not she's someone's sister, mother, daughter, wife. She's just someone. Right? She's a person. But that's what visual pornography does. That's what lust does in all of its forms. It robs people of their humanity. It dehumanizes them and it reduces them to someone that I consume for my own satisfaction and my own pleasure. And here's the thing, men and women alike struggle with visual pornography. Right? It's, it, it, they, it's common in both. Right? It's more prolific with men, but both, both men and women struggle with this. And this is one of the most obvious ways that we indulge in lust, but it's not the only way. It's not the only way. The next way that, that we indulge in lust is what's known as emotional pornography. Emotional pornography, because a lot of women let themselves off the hook with this sermon, like, oh, we're going to talk about lust, and that's his problem, right? But emotional pornography, the thing, it's still, it's the images, desires, expectations that you fill your mind with that feed your heart. And the things that start to do that are romance novels and romantic comedies and TV shows like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, and they start to create this, this fantasy world where other people exist to fill my emotional needs and satisfaction. Right? And emotional pornography is just as damaging to intimate relationships because it starts to set expectations that my partner exists to make me feel satisfied. And even when we start to compare our partner with another person and say, well, I wish they were more like that because then I would be more satisfied. So, you know, I've been married for over 16 years and I could say like, you know, I really wish that my husband saying like M Michael Buble, that would make my life so much better, right? And if he could just do that. And this guy over here can totally sing like Michael Buble and that's not fair, right? And I can start to compare and, and I can create this emotional fantasy world where Steve exists just to make me happy, right? And that is emotional pornography. And it is just as damaging. And women, too often, we let ourselves off the hook for that.
because we start to consume things that make us dissatisfied with our partner because we think the world should operate like this. We think every man should act like Hugh Grant in a, in a romantic comedy movie. Um, and so we fill our minds with unrealistic expectations. It feeds our heart, and it starts to break down relationship. Emotional pornography is just as bad as visual pornography in terms of what it does to violate relationship and what it does to dehumanize the other person. Because we rob them of their humanity and we begin to think people exist to make me happy. And the third way that we fall into pornography is what I call attractional pornography. And this is when we want others to lust after us. And this can involve dressing provocatively, this can involve beginning to think that I use my body in order to get attention, to draw people's gaze towards me. And it is just as dehumanizing because it is not about attraction. It is not about seeking attraction in order to have intimacy and connection and love. It is about seeking admiration. And so I'm trying to get someone to, to admire me, and that makes me feel great about myself. And I turn the other person into a mirror. Right? And, they, and I, they lose all their humanity. And I don't actually think about what that's going to do to them, to their soul, to their heart, to their relationships. Because really, it's fulfilling my own self-gratification. So the impulse to lust starts, at the, starts with the eye. It starts with the heart. It starts in this place where I'm, I'm craving something. And Jesus says, pluck it out. Get rid of it. Deal with the impulse as soon as you can. Because... The, if you indulge the impulse long enough, it almost always will lead to the act, right? And this is where we start getting into the hand of, of um, lust. And so Rick Warren says this, and I think this is really helpful. God made every one of us a sexual being, and that is good. Attraction and arousal are natural, spontaneous, God-given responses to physical beauty, while lust is a deliberate act of the will. Lust is a deliberate act of the will. Lust becomes a deliberate and intentional decision, right, where we start to act on it. And, and when we do this, we violate the way that we are designed. Because here's the thing. Like it or not, God created us. God created human sexuality, and God created it with intention. And so, yes, yes, human connection and attraction, that is absolutely part of the design. But it is always meant to culminate in, a, in what's known as a covenant relationship. And this often looks like legal marriage, but that's not always been everyone's option, right? But intimacy is designed to be inside a covenant relationship. What is a covenant relationship? It is a binding relationship. It is more than signing a lease together, right? That is not a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship is the intertwining of two lives. It is binding them together. It is making vows. And Jesus says this about two people who enter a covenant relationship. He says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. A covenant relationship is a sacred vow taken before God, right? And so we can say whether you do that legally or not, that's, that's, a, that's a bigger debate. But it is, a, it is a vow that is not easily broken. It means that your lives are so intertwined that that you can't just walk away, right? And so that is God's intention for physical intimacy, for sexual activity. That is where it's meant to, to be. That is, that is the context. And so James Bryan Smith has a really helpful image, and I love this, this triangle, right? And so he says, commitment's on one end, intimacy is on the other, and as commitment grows, intimacy grows, and you end up at a covenant relationship, right? So the apex 
of physical intimacy should be within the context of a covenant relationship. That's, that's how God has intended physical intimacy to be all along. And so as commitment grows, physical intimacy grows. And, and so lust is when sexual activity shows up outside of this design. And I'm going to show three ways in which that shows up, when we, how we act on it. The first is outside of a covenant relationship. Outside of a covenant relationship. This is when we are engaged in sexual activity and we are not, we are not at a covenant relationship commitment, right? So uh, here's the thing about our culture. Our culture, and it's not a bad thing, but our culture, the highest standard right now for sexual intimacy is consent. And that is a really good starting point, right? Like sexual activity outside of consent shouldn't happen ever. But that is not the highest standard. God has a much higher standard than consent. But our culture says as long as it's consensual, then it's okay. Because sex is good and natural and pleasurable. But uh, Dallas Willard says this, and I think it's great wisdom. He says the two main errors in the area of human sexuality are these. One, assuming that all sexual desire is good. And two, believing that all sexual desire is bad. And so the church has definitely landed on side two more often than not, right? It's bad, avoid it, you know, until you get married, it's all terrible, and then you get married and suddenly you're supposed to flip a switch and now it's great, right? And so we've talked about it in a really unhelpful way. But the culture has gone with number one and saying, it's all good. As long as it's consensual, it's good. In fact, not too long ago, I was watching a television show and the main character had had a breakup, and so she decided she wanted to have a one-night stand. Right? And this is when I realized like, I've been married for a long time and really out of the culture because I didn't even, I didn't even think about this. But the, you, you know, for me, I was like, oh, you shouldn't. That, like, I didn't grow up watching TV having people have one-night stands. But in the show, her friends were shocked that she'd never had a one-night stand. It's kind of like a rite of passage. And so there were all these rules, and they were committed to helping her have a successful one-night stand. And I thought, this is crazy. Our culture has gone crazy. But because it's consensual, and sex is natural and pleasurable, not that big of a deal, that's the message that we're giving, right? So it's fine as long as it's consensual, but that, that is not God's standard for us. When intimacy exceeds commitment, it is ultimately a selfish and self-indulgent and self-gratifying act. Right? It, is, it is ultimately about me. When, when physical intimacy exceeds commitment, ultimately that is saying I and more concerned with my immediate pleasure and my immediate satisf- satisfaction than actually honoring you and honoring the other person. Because God's highest standard is love. And love is best realized in a covenant relationship. And so when we are acting sexually outside of that, we are in violation of the way that God intends us to act. Okay? So that's, that's the first way. That's the first way that we do this. The second act is the violation of a covenant relationship. And this is what we would call, you know, affairs, whether you are having, whether you are married and having an affair with someone outside of your marriage or whether you are having an affair with someone who is married, this is a violation of a covenant relationship. You are violating a covenant, right? Because this is not how it's meant to show up. And, and this shows up two different ways. The first is physical adultery, right? Where you actually have a physical sexual relationship with someone outside of marriage that violates the covenant, that violates the vow and the commitment. And that one feels very violating. I've sat with many couples who have, who have had to work through uh, a, a sexual affair. But it also shows up as emotional adultery, right? And this is even harder. And I've sat with so many couples where one, one partner got into what's known as an emotional affair with someone else. And they started sharing 
and seeking solace with someone outside of their covenant relationship. And they started you know, confiding in them, and they started growing close to them. And maybe it never crossed a physical boundary, but that emotional violation is just as much a violation. And sometimes it's harder for couples to deal with because it doesn't have that physical violation. But either way, both of them violate your covenant relationship because ultimately you're saying, I am more concerned with my personal satisfaction than the commitments that I have made. Right? And that is an act of lust. When we act outside of our covenant relationship, because we start to seek satisfaction with someone else beside the person that we've committed with. And the third way, the third way we, we can act on lust is breaking of a covenant relationship. And this very often looks like divorce, right? It looks like divorce. And Jesus, right after he talks about lust, he says this about divorce. He says, you have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. And so let me nuance this a little bit, because I, I just want to say, I'm just going to say right up front, I know there are people sitting in this room who have been divorced, who are going through a divorce, who are considering divorce, who are remarried, who have married someone who is divorced, so I'm be, I want to be very sensitive to that. Right? I, I recognize what's going on there, but I want to talk about what Jesus is talking about here. Right? Because marriage is God's intended context for intimate relationship and love. And so he's Jesus is referring to the Mosaic practice, going back to the, to the Mosaic law, and it says this in Deuteronomy. Suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. Having discovered something wrong with her, he writes her a document of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her away from his home. And this got down to you know, men could divorce their wives for just about anything that was displeasing to them. So if they didn't like the way they cooked dinner, if they didn't like the way they kept the house, if they saw another person that they thought was more attractive, they could just send their wife away. And then this woman would be left destitute unless she could go back to her father's house or, or an older brother's house, and she would have to remarry in order to survive. And Jesus is he's saying something descriptive. He's saying you create a cycle of broken relationships. When you, when you break a covenant, you create a cycle of broken relationships. And, and so Jesus is saying, ultimately, your commitment to this person doesn't end just because the relationship ends. Now, here's the thing about divorce. I, again, I've sat with many couples over the years of ministry. And I have yet to meet a couple who's on the brink of divorce, who's walking through divorce, who treats it blasé, who treats it like it's not a big deal. I always say divorce is always tragic. It is always tragic. No one enters a covenant relationship expecting it to end. Right? I've yet to meet that person. Maybe they're out there, but I haven't met them. You know, when, when divorce happens, it is always tragic. And, and even when it's tragic, sometimes it is inevitable. Right? Sometimes it is inevitable. Sometimes it's inevitable because the, the other partner doesn't, does not want to reconcile and is not willing to, to move forward, and there's nothing you can do. Sometimes it is inevitable because the relationship has been so violated, right, it, that, you've, that you've violated the covenant so much that it's beyond repair, right? But no matter what, no matter what, it is tragic. And I want to say, and I say this every time I talk about marriage, the other thing that violates and breaks a marriage covenant is any form of abuse, any form of abuse at all, it, whether that is spiritual abuse, emotional abuse, or physical abuse, all of that violates and breaks the marriage covenant. 
right? And if you are currently in an abusive relationship, please, please, you can come seek me. You can seek one of the pastors. We will help, help you get help, right? Abusive relationships, that is not what I'm talking about. But I do want to talk to those of you who might be considering divorce right now or maybe are walking through it, right? And it's not necessarily inevitable. It's not necessarily beyond repair because N.T. Wright says, at the root of most divorces are lust and lies, right? Either and, and lust, it can be that the marriage has been violated by physical uh, violation, but often it's emotional lust that's at the root of most divorces. I knew a couple, uh, you know, part of, part of a family, part of my family, and uh, they were married, and the wife got, she was stuck in this emotional lust cycle, and she kept saying to her husband, well, you don't do this, and you need to do this more, and you need to do this more, and you need to do this more, and because it often shows up as nagging and nitpicking, and, uh, and he would try, and he would try, and he would try, but she would threaten divorce. If you don't fix this, if you don't get better at this, then, then I don't want to be married to you anymore, and then one day she said that, and he turned to her and said, fine, I don't want to be married to you anymore either, and he never turned back, right, and I would say both of them regret it to this day. Both of them are on multiple marriages, and both of them feel like, it, they shouldn't have let, let themselves get there. And so sometimes at the root of breaking a covenant relationship is ultimately because you have given into a lustful fantasy that there's someone else out there. I talk about this all the time about the 80-20 rule. Any partner that you're with, the best partner is going to fulfill 80% of your needs and 20% are going to go unmet. And often affairs happen because the 20% shows up over here. You know, Michael Buble suddenly is like, I can sing for you. And I think, oh, I'm going to ditch this 80% and jump onto the 20%. That sounds so fun. And then you, you get over there and you realize, I'm left with 20%. I lost 80%. And so I want to challenge couples here. If you are on the brink of divorce, if you are considering it, I really want you to stop and think, is it inevitable? Is there a way forward? Have I, it's part of this is that I'm, I'm so enamored with the 20%, I'm about to ditch the 80%, right? Because that, that is at its root, it's lust. Okay, so now that we all equally feel terrible about ourselves, right? Everyone feeling kind of bad? Yep, good, good, good. That's my job, right? That's why they pay me the big bucks, make you feel terrible on a Sunday morning. No, uh, let's, how do we deal with this? Where do we go? What do we do? Let's talk about where we don't go. We don't go to shame. We don't go to shame. That's what sexual sin always wants to do. It wants to shame you. Sin uses the voice of shame to make you hide and, and be secretive and withdraw, and, and it just it festers. That's where sin festers is when shame comes along. James Bryan Smith says this, too many people repeatedly try and fail to deal with lust through their willpower, willpower and tearful prayers but find no genuine change. We cannot change our heart by changing our outer behavior alone. See, shame condemns us. Shame says, you're not good enough. You gotta hide this. You gotta fix this. God doesn't think you're good enough. Don't let anyone know. And it pulls us back into the dark and says, keep it secret because everyone will, will hate you and look down on you. That's what shame does. Shame condemns, but God convicts. God convicts because conviction is about saying, this is not worthy of you this is not the life that I have for you. There is more to life than this. You are not living the way that I want you to live. Paul says this, for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, 
but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. And so God does want to convict us. And maybe you're feeling that today to say, this is not the way to live. If you are in the grips of lust, whatever form that is, this is not the way to live. This is not what's best for you. And so how do we get out of that? C.S. Lewis says this, love is the great conqueror of lust. Love is the great conqueror of lust. We have to go back to the virtue. See, lust is easier. Lust, I'm in control, right? I'm in control. I'm in control of how I feel and who you are and what I do and what you do. I'm in control. But lust is just a stand-in for what we were ultimately designed for. We are made in the image of a God who is love. We are made at our core for connection. We are made at our core for intimacy. And so lust is this. It steps in, but it's like eating junk food. It just leaves you empty and unsatisfied and unhealthy. The real antidote, the real antidote is love. We need to desire the greater thing, the thing we were meant to desire. Rob Bell says, if, you, if, you, if it's just me against lust, the odds, are, the odds are always against me. Whatever it is that has its hooks in you, you will never be free until you want more. It's not about getting rid of desire. It's about giving ourselves to bigger and better and more powerful desires. Lust tries to fill an emptiness that only love can fill. We need the bigger desire. And romantic love is great, but romantic love is not the answer to lust. Romantic love is but a shadow of the love that really fills us up. And if we don't have the real thing, then our romantic love will go all out of whack and lust will show up there. Because only when we're filled with the love of God, that's what really heals us. That is the antidote, is being connected to the love of God. Paul again says this, when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, not because we fixed ourselves and got it all together, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus comes to complete us, to fill us. And so, yes, there's lots of things that you can do to, to help prevent lust or keep it at bay. Like, you can get a filter on your internet, and you can put the computer in public spaces, and you can have appropriate relational boundaries, and you can monitor what you read and what you watch and what you consume. All of that is wise and good, and you should put those in place. But they will not heal you. They will not stop it. Only God can do that. And that is the powerful thing where, where we're told God loves us and then gives us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God himself who literally comes and lives inside of us to change us from the inside out. The love that we are seeking when we fall into lust actually comes and fills that emptiness. And so I had a friend who, who struggled with visual pornography. He didn't grow up in the church. He was introduced to it at an early age. And uh, it was just natural, right? It was just normal. And then he came to know Jesus, and he got married, but it was still there. He didn't know how to deal with it, and he was still struggling with it. And eventually, um, talking with him, he learned, well, it's not just because he tried all the things to stop it, all the behavior fixes to stop it, and it didn't work. He kept falling into it. And the thing that healed him, the thing that broke it, was when he started to reflect on God's love for him, when he started to draw on the Holy Spirit and say, it's not just to help me not do this, but actually let me reflect on what my heart really longs for. God, draw me into the things that are good for me. God, help change my thoughts and my impulses. And that's what heals us. 
It is the love of God. It is being connected to the love of God. It is meditating on the love of God because that's real health. And visual pornography loosened, it lost its grip on his life. And, he's, and he says, yes, sure, every once in a while the impulse comes, but, but he's so connected to God now, he knows where to go. That impulse doesn't have a grip on his heart any longer. And so to close here, how do we access that love? The first thing that we do is repent. And repent isn't feel really bad about yourself and beat yourself up and go say how terrible you are. And a lot of us have tried that, right? That's not repent. Repent means to turn towards God. It means to recognize that God has more for me. It is to say, this is harming me, God, and I want to be free from it. The second thing then is to receive, to receive. So first we repent and say, God, I don't, I don't want to live this way anymore. But to receive is to know that I'm not turning towards a God who's disappointed and angry and ashamed and wagging his finger at me saying, you should do better. I'm turning towards a God who loves me and who wants the best for me and who wants to set me free and who wants to fill me with what is actually going to satisfy. And the third thing is to rely. So we repent, we receive, and then we rely and we learn to keep in step with, with the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, guide my thoughts. Guide my mind. Guide my words. Help me to, to meditate that which is good for me and will fill me up, not that which will harm me. Because God, God wants to set you free. God wants to set you free. And to really be healthy, it is not just fixing your behavior. Yes, do the wise things. Yes, make the wise choices. Yes, share what's going on with wise people. If you are in the midst of this and you need help, we have pastors on staff here to help you, to help guide you into the right resources and get you the help you need. But ultimately, the thing that will heal you is your relationship with Jesus. And not just asking Jesus to make you stop doing something, but to really fill up and find the things that you can meditate on that will fill your mind with how much God loves you. And so for that, as we close right now, I wanna, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. I'm going to read a prayer, my favorite prayer, in the Bible. It comes from the book of Ephesians, and it is about the love of God. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will go down into God's love and keep you strong. And, you, and may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is his love. May you experience the love of Christ that is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever, and all God's people said, amen, amen. I'm going to invite you to stand up. We're going to respond in worship about how God sets our whole heart free, how the love of God will liberate you from anything that is holding you bondage.